Look at our passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts and to the building of his church. Let's pray together. Our glorious and almighty triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the, the wonderful work of redemption. Lord, for the covenant of redemption that, that was made between Father and Son in heaven before the foundation of the world and eternity past. And we praise you, triune God, that, that you have accomplished everything that is required for our salvation. Heavenly Father, as you sent the Son, Lord Jesus, as you willingly came in human flesh, Lord, to fulfill all righteousness in living a, a sinless life and dying a sinner's death. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for, for regenerating our hearts and for applying to us the finished work of Jesus Christ. Triune God, we pray that through the power of the Spirit, you would help us, Lord, to get a deeper understanding of that which is unfathomable to our finite minds, that of God three in one, one God in three persons. Help us to see you. Help us to know you. Help us to worship you for who you are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. In the summer of 325, a council of the Roman Emperor Constantine was convened. This was the first ecumenical council. Constantine summoned about 300 bishops from all around the Roman Empire to deal with a very important matter. If you know your church history, you know that Rome had been to that point a fierce persecutor of Christianity. And many of the men who were assembled for this council bore the scars on their bodies from torture that they had experienced at the hands of the Roman government. But Constantine had apparently converted to Christianity and now he sought to unify the churches. But in so doing, a pernicious issue had to be resolved in order for the churches to be truly one. Constantine famously declared, the vision is in the church is worse than war. But the issue that was at stake was far worse even than church division. 
The issue at stake was the church's doctrine of the deity of Christ. That Jesus Christ is truly God. Arius, a pastor of a prominent church in Alexandria, Egypt, was teaching that Christ, although not merely human, was not truly God. Arius said that Christ was, and I quote, alien and dissimilar in all things from the Father. In other words, Arius contended that Christ did not share in the attributes and nature of God. He also said that there was when Christ was not. In other words, Arius was arguing that Jesus Christ, God the Son, was not eternal, but was begotten in time. The bottom line is that Arius denied the Trinity, saying that Christ is not God the Son in human flesh. As the debate in the council proceeded, Arius vigorously argued his position as the council members listened. But as he continued, one bishop, Nicholas of Myra, was so incensed with Arius' blaspheming of the Lord Jesus Christ that he rose, walked across the room, and slapped Arius across the face. Now, the identity of Nicholas of Myrna may not be familiar to many of you, at least until the children's time, but he's commonly more, more commonly referred to as St. Nicholas, and, and here in our culture by the popular name Santa Claus. Now, I'm not seeking to justify punching a heretic in the face or punching anyone in the face, but there are far less important reasons. If you're going to punch somebody in the face, there are far less important reasons to do it than this. What is at stake here is the glory of Jesus Christ. To call Jesus Christ less than God is blasphemy. It's blasphemy. It is an affront to his infinite majesty. It is a denial of his awesome attributes. The son is homoousius with the father. He is consubstantial with the father. He shares one essence with the father. So the glory of Jesus Christ is at stake. But the possibility of salvation is also at stake. You see, all sin is infinite because all sin is committed against an infinitely holy God. And infinite sin requires infinite punishment. And only God has the infinite value to pay the debt of sin that we owe. No one less than God himself could make atonement for our sin. Furthermore, no one less than God could fully obey the moral requirements of the law in our place. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Brothers and sisters, our high priest is God incarnate, God in human flesh. He must be God incarnate or could not have lived without sin. So the bottom line is that if Jesus Christ is not truly God, we cannot be truly saved. Nicholas might have been wrong in his actions, but not in his motivations. 
Nicholas was brought before Emperor Constantine, who said that although it was illegal to assault someone in the, in the presence of the emperor, that, that other bishops should determine the punishment for Nicholas. So the bishops decided to strip Nicholas of his bishop's garments, chain him, and throw him in jail. And Nicholas did not waver in his position. However, praise God, he repented of his act of violence and prayed for forgiveness. The decision of the council was to reinstate Nicholas, but far more importantly, the council upheld Nicholas's views and condemned Arius' teaching as heresy. The council produced the Nicene Creed, which remains the measure of true Christian doctrine to this day. It was amended in the year 381 to, to more clearly affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit, and in the year 589 to address the relationship of the Father, uh, of the relationship of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, adding that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And this actually caused a split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. The Nicene Creed declares. We, and I, and I hope you're familiar with this. It's, it's on our website. This is, this is a really vitally important Christian statement. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before our, all worlds, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life, the world to come. Amen. Yeah, this is what we hold to as a church. This is orthodox Christian teaching. This is a right understanding of who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are. One God in three persons. The Council of Nicaea soundly refuted Arianism, but the heresy continues to this day in the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, or more accurately, the Russellites, the Watchtower cult. It, it continues even in in lesser forms, in, in popular evangelicalism among those who, who hold to a position that is known as the eternal subordination of the Son. Now, again, it is to a lesser, lesser extent. It is not full-blown heresy. But it's still a wrong teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. One prominent example is, is Bruce Ware. He's a professor at, Southern, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, my, my alma mater. He wrote in his book, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationship, Roles, and Relevance. This is a quote. He said that all worship of the Son is penultimate. All worship of the Son is penultimate. He said the ultimate object of our honor, glory, praise, and worship is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself alone is over all. 
In other words, Ware says that we must not worship the Son in and of himself. But he says that all worship redounds to the Father. Right? He says that we don't worship Jesus Christ for, for who he is as God the Son, that, that any worship of, of Jesus Christ as God the Son ultimately goes to the Father. This is contrary to Nicene Christianity. This is contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. Throughout the New Testament, we see direct worship of the Son in and of himself. Read through Revelation, and you'll see the Father and the Son sharing worship. And you'll see the Son worshipped directly. Revelation 5.12, for example, says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the worship of God the Son in and of himself. Furthermore, Ware asserts that we should never pray directly to the the Son, but only through the Son. Now, it is true that there's a general pattern in Scripture that we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. But quite often in Scripture, you will see prayers addressed directly to Jesus Christ. We saw just one one example just last week as we we were studying the, the death of Stephen. As he was stoned to death, he prayed to Jesus Christ. He prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen was praying directly to Jesus Christ, not through Jesus Christ to the Father. I clearly remember as I read Bruce Ware's book earlier in my Masters of Divinity, and, and I was, as I was reading the book and, and, and reading these things, I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And, and so I approached the, the professor, and he, and he agreed. He said, that's actually wrong. That, that, that's actually against, against God's word. And then as I, I began my, my doctoral studies on the, the model prayer, my, my intention was, was to do a work and, and to include work uh, on, on what it means to, to understand rightly who Jesus Christ is. And, and specifically, the focus was on prayer. And is it appropriate to, to pray to Jesus Christ? But as, as I was preparing to, to write this paper, I, I began to draw the conclusion that Bruce Ware was a, is a subordinationist. Again, not, not to the same level as Arius, okay? but, but the, the same seeds of, of error and same seeds of, of heresy were actually present in, in both. And I reached out to, to a friend who had I've done some of his doctoral work at Southern Seminary with, with Bruce Ware, and, and he reassured me, no, Bruce Ware is not a subordinationist. And I read some, some work from, from a, another prominent theologian on this issue, and, and he said this position is, is, is not actually subordinationism. And then during a, while I was doing the study, I, I preached a sermon series on the Trinity, and it was required for, for my studies, and and I, in the course of it, I actually pre- I presented Ware's position. Now, not his, his position on prayer or worship. I've always believed that, that we should pray directly, that we can and should pray directly to the Son, and we can and should worship the Son in his own right. But in the context of this, of this sermon series, I actually presented Bruce Ware's position in principle, that the Son eternally submits to the Father. 
I was wrong. That, that was incorrect. That was false doctrine. And I've talked to many of you about this, this privately, but this is, this is my opportunity to, to go outside the full distance to, to preach a retraction, to, to correct what was error that was taught in this pulpit by me. Again, you need to examine everything that I say according to God's word. I'm going to get, I'm a man. I'm a very fallible human being. I will get things wrong. But beloved, God's word never gets things wrong. So everything that I say, you need to be Bereans. You need to actually go and examine God's word for yourself in order to, to even as I talk about these things, even, even as I preach this retraction, maybe think, well, I don't know about that. Don't take my word for it. Go to God's word. Do your own study on these things. So I presented this position. But then just before I handed in my paper, I, I reached out to a friend of mine who's a, who's a Baptist historian. And, and I, friends, you, you need to know church history. So many of the errors and mistakes and, and, and even heresies that spring up, up in the church today are, is because we do not know church history. Because we've, we have strayed in broadly in evangelicalism from what the church has historically believed. But as I reached out to my friend, he said, I was talking about this, he said, he's actually, no, John Bruce Ware is, is a subordinationist. And we walked through it, and, and, and some, some, he gave me some, some reading to do. And, uh, and, I, and I walked through, and I said, so with, with less than a week to, to hand in my paper, I scrambled to rewrite the paper. And when I got the, the paper back, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't get a very good grade. I'm not complaining because it really wasn't a very good paper. But in the notes, the grader said that, that, that I was wrong on, on, on presenting the position that, that, that there is full equality in the Godhead in eternity, that the, the Son does not eternally submit to the Father. He said I was, I was wrong. He said that the Son does actually eternally submit to the Father. And he said that, that John MacArthur, who was the, the president of the seminary, would, would disagree with me. Well, three weeks later, the storm broke. Not with me, but it came to my attention that this whole issue of eternal subordination of the sun, this is like, it was less than three weeks after I'd, I'd gotten my paper back. It blew up. And, and all through, um, in, in reform circles, there's writing back and forth between Bruce Ware and, and Wayne Grudem and, and some, some prominent um, theologians who hold to eternal subordination of the sun on one side to more, more historically orthodox um, theologians on the other side, and they're debating it. It, it, got, it got pretty hot and heavy. And I was like, wow, this is, this is interesting timing. I wish this happened a month prior, but God knew. So it was during that time that this view came to be called eternal subordination of the Son, that the Son has always, has always submitted to the Father, even in eternity past, and will do so in eternity future. However, this position, this is so eternal subordination of the Son, or ESS, is a blatant misunderstanding of the eternal relations of the Godhead. It is a blatant misunderstanding of the Godhead himself. It's really tantamount to tritheism, that there are three gods, not one God in three persons. And so I had an opportunity to ask John MacArthur in class, and he told me that the position of, of ESS is actually ridiculous. So clearly it was a greater who had misunderstood the doctrine. We need to be very careful, again, whether it's, it's, it's professors in seminary, 
But whether it's, it's well-known theologians, it is God's word that is our authority. And we need to be so careful in these days that, that heresy travels at the speed of light. Over the internet, it is so easy to come into contact with, with bad teaching, especially at this fundamental level of who God really is. And, and heretics don't come with, a, with an H tattooed on the foreheads. They, they come presenting things that are, are so often true. But if you follow them through to, to, their, to, to the end of what they believe, it's, 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 it's even damnable heresy. Again, I'm not, I'm not putting Bruce Ware and, and Wayne Grudem in that category, but if you follow it out to, the, to its natural end, that's where it leads. That's where it leads. Proponents of ESS wrongly appeal to verses like 1 Corinthians 11.3, that the head of Christ is God. They misunderstand the fact that Christ submitted to the Father for the purposes of redemption. This does not reflect any eternal relation in the Trinity. This is specifically for the purpose of redemption that was in the incarnation that God the Son submitted to the Father because his obedience was necessary to fulfill the righteousness that we lack. Proponents of ESS miss out of the fact that there is one will in the Godhead. There's one will in the Godhead, not, not two or three wills. In the scriptures, wives submit to your husbands. It's because wives and husbands have two wills. But if you have the same will, you don't need to submit because you actually agree on everything. I mentioned the name Wayne Grudem. He's the, the editor of the, the popular ESV study Bible. He holds to ESS as well. In fact, the notes of the ESV study Bible are riddled with this teaching. But very few in the church have learned the discernment from God's word to be able to, to rightly divide the word of God so they can understand. They just accept it because, well, Wayne Grudem is well known and he, he teaches this convincingly. But does not line up with the whole counsel of God's word. ESS is at odds with, the, with what the church has historically believed and far more importantly, it is at odds with what scripture teaches about the Trinity. Friends, all doctrine matters. But this issue holds the highest levels of importance because we're talking about theology proper. We're talking about who God is. We're talking about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But here I just really want to focus for the time we have left on, on one key issue this morning from Matthew 1.23 that is really addressed in it. It's where Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God's God with us. This is a powerful prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as Baruch Maoz in our, our book on Galatians that we're studying in Men's and Women's Bible Study says that, that, that we often fail and we take isolated verses and divorce them from their context and natural meaning in order to present them as messianic prophecies. He's saying that what we tend to do is we, and, and rightly so, we, we tend to, to look in the Old Testament for Jesus Christ. However, we fail to understand how the, the text that we're studying in the Old Testament was, was, was 
what the author meant when he actually wrote it and how it was, was understood by its original recipients. And it's only then that we can find the enduring truth and the enduring application. You see, when we read the Old Testament, we're, we're reading somebody else's mail. Okay, Jesus Christ is there, but in order to understand who Jesus Christ is from the Old Testament, you need to understand in its, its, in a, its original and historical context. And only then will you make a, a clear and correct line to who Jesus Christ is. The context of, of Isaiah 7, 14 goes back to Isaiah 1, 2 to 5. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck, struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? But there in the middle of a string of prophecies of coming judgment are signs of hope. Signs of hope. As Matthew Henry explains, by the foregoing threatenings, Jerusalem is brought into a very deplorable condition. Everything looks melancholy. But here the sun breaks out from behind a cloud. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. and The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Isaiah 4.2 so the immediate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 was that the Lord had sent Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah, telling him not to fear. Telling him not to fear. The threat of Syria and Ephraim, another name for the, the northern kingdoms of Judah. Isaiah tells Ahaz to look for a sign, even one as high as heaven. The Lord was offering deliverance, but Ahaz replied, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz refused to humble himself and to ask the Lord for help. Instead, he gave the gold of the temple. He gave the gold of the temple to Assyria, inciting them to attack Syria. These events are chronicled in, in 2 Kings 16. And so in response, Isaiah prophesied the sign of Emmanuel the son of a virgin. This truly was a sign as high as heaven. God is with his people to deliver them. The threat of Syria and Ephraim will be removed. They will be destroyed. But instead, because of the sin of Ahaz, a much more dangerous threat will come in their place. Assyria itself will invade Judah. Judah had refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. Therefore, the Lord brought judgment down on them. But the ultimate fulfillment, this, again, that's the picture in its original context, but there is a further fulfillment in line with that original authorial intent. And Matthew Henry focuses on the, the future fulfillment at the coming of Christ when Israel shall be renewed. The trials will have, will have purified the nation. On a faithful remnant, the Lord would fulfill his promises to Israel. The branch of the Lord is the Messiah. He is the hope of Israel. And so Isaiah 7.14 reveals the hope of Israel. The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. So once again, this clearly points ahead to Jesus Christ, 
The virgin is Mary, the son Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Isaiah wrote in the 8th century B.C., but this was not fulfilled until 700 years later to somewhere around between the year 6 to 4 B.C. But just stop and think about what this means. I'm not just talking about the, the virgin birth. You know, people tend to focus on the virgin birth, and it really is amazing. It is, it's an absolute miracle. It only happened once. But that's nothing compared to the miracle of the incarnation. The fact that God himself took on human flesh and dwelt among men. God himself took on human flesh. Now listen to this, this quote by, by John Owen. I, I, I tested it on, on Jane last night. She says, go really slow because it's, it's a little technical and, and a little long. So, so just bear with me for a few moments. Bear with John Owen. All other things were produced and affected by an outward emanation of power from God. Right? Everything created is, is, is coming from God's power. He said, let there be light, and there was light. But this assumption of our nature into the hypostatic union with the Son of God, this constitution of one and the same individual person in two natures, so infinitely distinct as those of God and man. The hypostatic union is that Jesus Christ is God and man, truly God and truly man. Not just more than man and, and not just and not any little bit less than God. He is truly God and truly man. This is a, a focus of, of another creed of the church, the, the, the um, Chalcedonian Creed from the year 451, where the focus there was, was on the fact they were, they were okay with Jesus being God. I think they get, okay, I get that. Jesus is God. But their problem is because when they looked at who Jesus is and, and what he'd done, they didn't believe he was truly man. So the, the, another ecumenical council came together in order to, to affirm the truth that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Owen oh, continues. This, this blows my mind. I hope it does the same for you by the Spirit whereby the eternal was made in time. The infinite became finite. The immortal, mortal. Yet continuing, eternal, infinite, immortal is that singular expression of divine wisdom, goodness, and power, wherein God will be admired and glorified unto all eternity. May we glorify God now and unto all eternity for the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Oh, it continues. Herein was that change introduced into the whole first creation, whereby the blessed angels were exalted, Satan and his works ruined, mankind recovered from dismal apostasy, all things made new, all things in heaven and earth reconciled and gathered into one head as a revenue of eternal glory raised unto God, incomparably above what the first constitution of all things in the order of nature could yield unto him. So what is at stake here? 
What is at stake here in the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God the Son in human flesh? It's the fact that God is truly with us. If he is not God incarnate, Satan wins. Mankind is doomed. All things remain corrupted and cursed, and God is robbed of his glory and everlasting rule. But because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God is truly with us. Satan has been ultimately defeated. Mankind can be redeemed. Creation can be redeemed. And God is glorified and his kingdom established for all eternity. Praise God for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, doctrine matters. It matters to God and it matters to creation and it should matter to us. Because our eternal destiny is at stake. God is triune. We worship one God in three persons. Consider the words of Church Father Gregory of Nazianzen. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. And when I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light." Again, I'm not justifying the assault of Nicholas on Arius. But it matters that Santa Claus was making a list and checking it twice that he's going to find out who's naughty and Nicene. I've been waiting for a long time to make that joke. Friends, Santa Claus came to town. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to the earth to redeem you and me from our captivity to sin. Doctrine matters. It matters eternally. May God fill our hearts with these truths and the wonder of the incarnation so that we will be able to worship God in the fullness for who he is. We're going to be doing this for all eternity. Let's try to get it right now. Through God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that we can pray to you, our elder brother. Lord Jesus, you came to overturn the curse that was upon us because of the sin of Adam, our first head. Lord Jesus, we praise you that through the power of the Holy Spirit and through your atoning sacrifice, we are no longer under Adam, but we are in you. Lord Jesus, you are our head. Help us to worship you for who you are. Help us, Lord, to grow in the knowledge of who you are and to, to live in submission to you for all that you are. Not as though we could do anything to earn our salvation, but Lord, simply to lift up the cup of salvation and to give thanks to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in your holy name.
Amen.